This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of A Dog Named Mattis, 12 Lessons for Living Courageously, Serving Selflessly, and Building Bridges from a Heroic Canine Officer, written and narrated by Sergeant Mark Tappan, available now everywhere. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our discussion today resumes our walk through the document, Theology That Works. So faith and work is our topic. And we've got really a whole array of associations between uh, how uh, our work applies to certain areas and certain issues of life that come up. And uh, the document that we are going through is one that is produced by the Kern Family Foundation to summarize kind of the issues of faith and work. And our expert today, a returning guest, a veteran of foreign wars, as I like to refer anyone who's been on the show before, is Greg Forrester. Welcome back, Greg. Thanks very much, Daryl. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, um, we want to start in by talking about uh, this section that's dealing with kind of the relationship of work and stewardship to different areas. And I think what I want to do, we're going to start off talking about greed to start off with, but before we do that, I want to set the positive table first. The document refers to what's called a stewardship mentality. Uh, the way in which we uh, manage uh, really the responsibilities that God has given to us. And so um, uh, what is a stewardship mentality and uh, why is it important when we think about the challenge of consumerism and materialism in particular? I think there are two ways you could define a stewardship mentality. One is in the vertical dimension. Uh, A steward is someone who is both over and under. Uh, So if you are a steward, then you are a steward over something. You have responsibility for it. You are accountable for what happens to it. Uh, But if you are a steward, then you are also a steward under someone. Uh, You are responsible to someone for that stewardship. You are accountable to someone for that uh, stewardship responsibility. Uh, So the human being is steward over the world a steward of material resources, a steward of relationships with other people, a steward of spiritual resources in some senses, uh, a a responsible agent. Uh, And uh, that also implies uh, responsible to someone. So a steward is under God, who is the ultimate owner, uh, the final owner of all of the things that we are stewards of. So we are kind of Managers in trust is one way that I've heard it put. Um, we, we have been created by God to be under him, but to be over all these things we have responsibility for. That's one way of thinking about a stewardship mindset. Uh, another way of thinking about it is to think about the alternative. You can always define something by asking, uh, well, if you don't have that, then what do you have? Uh, and as I uh, talk about in the paper, uh, the alternative really is is what I call a dualistic mindset in which Uh, moral and spiritual things are separated from material life. So you have a a set of religious activities or a set of moral exercises or whatever it is, and that is how you fulfill the part of your being that is spiritual or religious or moral. 
and then separate from that you have uh, activities that involve management of material things uh, and, and so work is in one category and, and moral and spiritual development is in a separate category. The stewardship mindset is in some ways defined by denying that dualism, denying that moral and spiritual things are separate from material things, uh, affirming that when we manage material resources, relationships, and other things, we are doing something that is of the profoundest moral and spiritual importance. So you put those two things together, and that means that no human being is a chief executive officer. We're all, we're all uh, sub-chiefs in one way or another. Well, the, the chief executive officer response, you know, is responsible to someone, too. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you can be the chief executive officer of your little corner of the world as long as you understand you're not the board. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, so let's, let's define this in relationship to what is sometimes called consumerism and in the, in the, in the danger of, uh, of what I would call overreaching in the material world, what we would probably more technically define with the simple word greed. How does a stewardship mentality help us with the with the danger uh, uh, of being greedy and with the with the subtle temptations that come with consumerism? Well, I think if you look at that dualism that I talked about earlier, uh, one form of dualism is to privilege moral and spiritual things and kind of look down your nose at material things. Uh, but the opposite error is to privilege the material things, and that's what you're talking about when you talk about greed. Uh, that's why, uh, although the word consumerism is fine, I usually use the word materialism mm -hmm. to describe that attitude because it reflects, I think, more precisely the problem we're dealing with. Uh, a, to treat material things as if they were of ultimate value. Uh, Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth, and I think part of the deceitfulness of wealth is the illusion that material things will satisfy you or give you safety, uh, give you security, or uh, uh, give you a shelter from a sense of guilt or, or, or worthlessness, that you can fill that hole with, with money or with material stuff. Um, ultimately, uh, th that's, that's the problem we're dealing with, that people think material things are what's going to make them all right. Uh, I think a stewardship mindset helps to break that down in a lot of ways. One of the most important ones is it gives us a new place to find spiritual satisfaction. Uh, people are turning to materialism usually because they have a hole they're trying to fill. Uh, they're looking for satisfaction and they think that they will get it by having stuff. Uh, now, they're not wrong to think uh, that, that satisfaction is out there to be found. Uh, and as Christians, we know that satisfaction comes from God and Christ. But what does that look like when you live it out? What does that look like when you put the rubber, when the rubber hits the road? Um, it mostly uh, looks like doing things that help other people, that serve other people. You know, you love God by loving your neighbor uh, to a large extent. So a, to have good stewardship, to be focused on being a good steward of all the things that come under my care, gives me a profound sense of satisfaction when I can say, I did something that made the world a better place. Uh, I faithfully executed my responsibilities. Uh, I made God happy by the way that I managed my job, my checkbook, my relationships, whatever it is. 
Um, and you mentioned at the beginning, before we talk about the negative, let's talk about the positive. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of what happens. When you have something positive to aspire to, something that is good, that's what is most effective in helping people overcome uh, a sin or something that they need to avoid. Uh, you want to give them something positive rather than simply kind of wagging your finger at the negative but offering nothing to replace it. Uh, so being a good steward and passing on uh, a world that's better than you found it, it gives people a positive uh, place where they can seek that satisfaction they're looking for. Now, uh, one of the things that people sometimes think material goods, goods will give them is not just security or kind of a control of their environment, living in a way that, that, is, that is satisfying because, because you're comfortable and that kind of thing and you have access to the things that you want. But another thing that people do with, with uh, materialism or consumerism is they think that somehow it gives them status, it gives them worth, it gives them value. Um, I think in some ways that's the more subtle uh, thing that, that materialism does to us. Um, what do you think of, of that observation? No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, one of my favorite observations that I quote all the time is from Catherine Leary Alsdorf, uh, who said that as Christians, if our identity is in Christ, we should be more willing to take risks. Because uh, we know that if we lose financially or in business, that that does not ultimately take away what, what matters most. Uh, that our identity is in Christ, so it is not in our checkbook. It is not in our uh, position in the office. It is not in whether our business succeeded or failed. Uh, so he, she said Christians should be more entrepreneurial because they don't need that stuff to establish their identity or status, as you put it. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. Now, um, when we when we talk about this area, sometimes when you hear theological responses to the economy, um, they often miss the the mark on, in making their comments. And in particular, they tend to sometimes suggest that consumption or economic development is not a positive category. That that somehow um, uh, the creation of wealth and the cre and the creation of of more abundance of goods. Uh, is not a good thing. That that it almost the suggestion it doesn't happen unless people take advantage of one another or, or something to that effect. Uh, why is that an inadequate view of the way God has created us to manage the creation? I think it comes back to our understanding of what creation is. Uh, we unfortunately very often have a very static view of creation that. Uh, God created the world in its essentially uh, final state, a perfectly developed and fulfilled state, and then the fall represented a, a falling away from that, and so the only thing that needs to happen is let's get back to Eden, right? Uh, but if you read the biblical narrative, it doesn't end with a garden. Right? It starts in a garden, but the, the, the redemption of, of creation does not uh, consummate in the return of the garden, right? Uh, son of Garden of Eden or Garden <laughs> of Eden Part 2. Uh -huh. uh, it's, that's not where the biblical narrative ends. The biblical narrative ends in a city. Uh, that uh, the creation is given to humanity as a project. Uh, Colin Gunton put it, uh, something that was in a state of potential, it was perfect in the sense that it was sinless. 
it was perfect in the sense that uh, everything that was needed was provided and God was going to be present and in active relationship with us to, to see the project through. But there was, it was dynamic, it was unfolding, it was something that was given to us to develop, to cultivate, to be creative, to build, to grow, uh, to make new things. Uh, and you see how that goes wrong after the fall, but the, the, the act of redemption is not to get us back to the garden, but rather to get this project of building and growing and developing reoriented towards its proper end, which is the glory of God and the love of God and neighbor. Uh, it's to take that project and, that has gone off the rails and put it back on the rails. Once you see that, then it makes perfect sense that over time, uh, uh, living in, in relationship with God and practicing the virtues that God teaches us to practice would have a, a general tendency to result in economic success. Now, that's not a promise, you know, we don't want the prosperity gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's more against the prosperity gospel than I am, I promise you. <laughs> But as a generalization, it is usually the case that people who are honest and diligent and sober and generous and seek the good of others will have more economic success than people who are greedy and shallow and lazy and, and can't control their desires and have to have the latest thing and are constantly spending themselves into debt uh, because they want to gratify those desires uh, and who can't be trusted, right? No one wants to do business with someone who's going to stab them in the back. Uh, and, and if you read the book of Proverbs, if you read a lot of the, uh, the Old Testament wisdom literature, the, uh, the laws, the Mosaic laws, if you read a, a number of the New Testament uh, documents, you find this sort of generalization affirmed, uh, that virtuous living on the whole and on balance, all things being equal, is going to lead to uh, that kind of flourishing. So as we talk about flourishing and we think about it uh, and we think about uh, uh, service and stewardship, uh, service and stewardship then push us in a direction where we're both helped individually and corporately, right? Absolutely. Um, I think the, uh, one of the things that we are struggling to recover, and I see more and more leaders in the, in the Christian space talking about this, uh, is to have an anthropology that recognizes the individual but also recognizes the social nature of human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, that in order to be human, we must be individuals who are unique and precious as, as individuals, but also we are members of communities. Uh, we are born into relationships. Uh, the little community of the family and the big communities of our neighborhoods and, and uh, nations. And so individually, if someone comes to Christ, we should expect uh, behaviors that were, uh, you know, counterproductive for flourishing are going to go away. You know, the addictions, the dishonesty, the lack of self-control, those things are going to go away. We should also expect, as Christians manifest that behavior in public places, as Christians participate in businesses, in marketplaces, in neighborhoods, and demonstrate this way of life, we should hope that while uh, some powers will reject it and fight against it, others will say, hey, this, you know, this works, this is attractive, this you know, fills a need that I didn't know I had. Uh, and so I think when Christians are manifesting that change in public, you do see a reaction against it by worldly powers, but you also see a powerful reaction towards it uh, by people who are, who are being moved 
uh, maybe in a saving way and maybe not in a saving way, but uh, in both of those ways it becomes appealing to people and changes the way they live. Yes, well, in contrast to that, the complaint that often comes up is the idea that people who are often at the top of the economic chain uh, make too much, even the suggestion that there uh, there's a way to make an, an immoral amount of money. Um, uh, is there any way to assess that kind of a claim? You know, uh, should a Christian have a Maserati? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me um, let me give you an example of that. Uh, I was once eating lunch with Dallas Willard a few years ago, and we were talking about the culture of sensuality, and uh, we were bemoaning the culture of sensuality. And then dessert came, and they brought this fantastic dessert. It was a parfait. It was this really tall glass filled, and it was just, it was amazing. Sounds it was, you know, dangerous to so, me. So delicious, and had all the, the whipped cream. And I just sat there and looked at it, and he had his in front of him, and I had mine in front of me. And I said, Dallas, are we surrendering to the culture of sensuality by eating this uh, dessert? And he said, well... That depends on how you feel about it. <laughs> it's a, spoken like a philosopher. <laughs> no, absolutely. And then, he, and then he said, could you stop if you ought to? Hmm. And I think that's a good place to begin with a difficult question like this. Uh, should a Christian own a Maserati? Well, um, is that something that you are dependent on in a way you shouldn't be? Why is it that you want a Maserati? Uh, I'll give you a, a, a sort of a counterexample. Uh, John Schneider used to talk about how he built a deck on the back of his house. Uh, and he said, uh, yes, I, I spent some, you know, a couple thousand dollars on this deck and I could have donated that to the poor. Does that make that a sin to have this deck? Well, I don't think so, because I glorify God by having this deck. You know, I, I sit and I behold the goodness of God's creation, and it gives me a unique opportunity to behold the goodness of God's creation, and that's good too. Uh, and it's not like he gives no money to the poor, right? It's not like he's not uh, generous. Now, so these are on, on opposite extremes, you know, having a Maserati and having a deck on the back of your house. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think on the one hand, we need to avoid a sort of passiveness that says, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to worry about that. Yes, yeah, sure, Christians can own Maseratis because it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, I think that kind of passiveness would be an open door for uh, a materialism to creep in. I think we should be very serious about examining whether you need something like that. Uh, on the other hand, there is also a danger of legalism. Uh, because if you can't have this kind of car, well, what what about this kind? You could do with something less. And what about this kind? And what about this kind? And what about this kind? Okay, I'll and just have a tricycle. Go, yeah, it can. Uh, yeah, well, uh, and this is an old issue. Um, yeah. Calvin in the Institutes writes about monks who compete to see who can survive on less bread and water. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, that I can I can get by on half half a piece of bread, and you need a whole piece of bread. So you're not a real Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I think if it helps to avoid legalism on the one hand and to avoid a passiveness, a sort of it doesn't matter attitude on the other hand. I know that's not tremendously helpful. Um, you know, it doesn't give you a nice, neat kind of uh, a dollar figure, right? Christians could live on $50,000 a year, and after that you should give it all away. I think the temptation to have that kind of specificity uh, is something we should be wary of. I don't think we need to be that specific about it, and, and I see that as a, you know, an open door to legalism. 
but on the other hand, I appreciate people who are saying, hey, think about whether you need that, you know, that fancy car. Think about whether you need to spend money uh, going out to eat as much as you do. Could you do that less? Uh, is there a better you know, stewardship for that, for that money? Another way to raise this, perhaps, is to ask the question, it's not a matter of how much you have, but what you do with what God gives you. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah. If you use it well, use it generously. Don't hoard it to yourself. Um, think about ways in which you impact other people through the means that God has given to you. Then uh, to having access to, uh, to a lot may allow you to serve very many people. And, and, and so that's the danger of a specific amount, uh, is, is that it can, it can get in the way of asking, well, what is actually this being used for, and why is it that, I, uh, why is it that God has given this to me, and, and how should I be using, it, uh, using the things that God has blessed me with? Asking those kinds of questions and then, and then utilizing it well may actually put you in a position to minister to more people than you would be able to minister to otherwise. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, I also think, though, that we need to continually examine whether that is the reason we're, uh, we're, we're getting into that position and not for some other, uh, some other reason that we wouldn't want to admit. Uh, Lewis, in terms of generosity, one thing I love is C.S. Lewis had this statement, uh, there should be things that you want to do but you can't do because you need uh, you need to be generous to others instead. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a, that's a good hermeneutic. I like that hermeneutic. Are there things that I want to do but I can't do because uh, it would contract my opportunities to be generous to others and serve others? Uh, I think the, the, I have found that helpful as I struggle with, with what admittedly are complicated issues. Well, the, the next section of, of the paper actually goes through a list of some key texts, and, and I'm, I'm in many ways glad we've gotten here because we do a lot of – we've done a lot of discussion over these many podcasts of theories and, and views of economics and that kind of thing. So to actually take a look at some specific texts is, is kind of nice. And, and I've got the list here, and I think uh, – um, the paper has done a nice job. There are actually tons of passages that deal with this theme in one way or another, but I think the paper's done a good job of, of selecting out kind of some of the highlighted passages. And the first one on the list is actually one of my favorite passages out of Luke. And, and it is the parable of what we call the rich fool. Uh, I, 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 I mean, and he's called the rich fool because at the end of the passage, of course, it says, you foolish man, you know, who will you uh, give the resources that you, you've saved um, to? And, and, and the passage is famous because this man happens upon a very good 
harvest, a very good crop. And this is Luke 12, uh, 13 to 21. And Jesus is actually uh, dealing with the issue of greed in this passage and the potential for greed. And then we go through a series of, of responses to what he's going to do. And the key part of the text in Luke 12 reads, reads as this. It starts in verse 17. It says, What should I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he's got this huge crop. Verse 18, then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and celebrate. And the interesting thing about those verses is how many times the first person singular appears in one form or another. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to myself, you know, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. It's, it's kind of all about him. Uh, in the way Absolutely. this goes goes about it. And then the response is, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And when I read this and talk about it, I say, uh, that's actually a very good question, <laughs> you know, uh, a question to ponder. So it is for the one who stores up riches for himself or is not rich towards God. When you come to the end and you've done all this um, archiving, if I can say it, of goods, um, lo and behold, when you're all done, you can't take the archive with you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, well, it's like different kind of being left behind. <laughs> well, and I think we can't overestimate the importance of household and community to a biblical understanding of economics, particularly household. Um, it's, it's interesting the question comes, who's going to inherit your wealth? Uh, it, this man's thinking about himself and not other people. Uh, the Bible's constantly admonishing households to take care first of their own needs and then serve the needs of others around them. But a household is itself a unit of people in relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you contrast this passage with the passage uh, where Paul talks about uh, several passages where Paul talks about how you have to support your family. Right. We're right? going to get to those. You have to provide for the needs of your family. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever because it's other-oriented. It's maintaining relationships with other people. It's serving the needs of people. Or another example I like to point people to is look at Job's description of his righteousness. Mm-hmm. Job constantly talks about other people. Mm-hmm. Job, when he talks about how he's obeyed God, he's constantly describing things he did for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the contrast with this, uh, where the focus is on himself, really, I think, gets to the heart of the problem. Yeah, and one of the dangers of consumerism, I think, can be that it may it gives us the impression that we are our own gods and that we can control our environment, that it's our world that matters, uh, it's what happens to me that matters, and, and we become the center of the universe. And that's something the Scripture uh, uh, really challenges, so much so that in some texts, greed is called idolatry. And, you know, I used to always kind of perplex me. Why greed and idolatry? I don't normally put those two words together, but there's a sense in which uh, greed, when it's so self-directed and so self-focused, ends up being this huge blinder that, that clouds out the rest of the world and my responsibility to it. And in the process, by turning so inward, I end up uh, building up an idol. And that idol is not necessarily the things, but what the things do for me in distinction and in detachment from the rest of the world around me. 
And I think the same thing happens in reverse, that when we have strong relationships with other people, that is one of the most important things that keeps us uh, grounded in godliness and virtue. Because it's very difficult to continue believing that you are God or treating yourself like you're God if you are regularly in good, you know, in strong relationships with other people. Uh, it, it prevents the formation of that uh, isolated universe. Now, a second passage here gets at a theme that you've already noted, and that is how the Scripture urges us to make sure that we take care of our own households. And this short verse does it pretty vividly. This is 1 Timothy 5.8. But if someone does not provide for his own, especially his own family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, there's almost no commentary to give to that. <laughs> I uh, I agree. I'm not sure. I think, again, it speaks to the profound uh, sense of importance of the household uh, in, in biblical texts throughout the Old and New Testament. The household is the key economic unit uh, for the biblical authors. Uh, and that's what stands behind, I think, this, uh, admo this admonition uh, that to fail to provide for your own household is tantamount to uh, uh, infidelity. We're designed to contribute to the well-being of those around us. That's part of what is being uh, affirmed here. Well, the third text is uh, James 1, 26 and 27, and it uh, raises a, another, uh, another commitment, again a relational commitment. If someone thinks he's a religious yet does not bridle his tongue and so deceives his heart, his religion is futile. So obviously there's an issue of self-control in that verse. And then it goes on to say, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their misfortune and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So there's an integrity element on the end of the passage, but I think the key part of this passage for our discussion is this sense of caring for those who are at risk, who are vulnerable. Uh, who, uh, who may not be able to care for themselves in stepping into the breach. Absolutely, and I think that's, uh, again, something that you see throughout Scripture. I'll go back to Job. Uh, Job talks repeatedly about his service to widows and orphans and outcasts and people in need. Uh, one of the most convicting passages I've ever read in Scripture is where Job says, I sought out the case I did not know. Hmm. Right After he's helped all the people in need that he knew of, he went out and found people in need for the purpose of serving them. That's deeply convicting for me. I don't know how many of us are going to be able to say that. That's right. Yeah. Another passage that's in the list is James 2, 15 to 17, which is inter interesting because it's an example that's actually uh, placed in the middle of a very theological discussion about the relationship between faith and works. And it's an interesting illustration because I think James presents it as, a, as an example of the way uh, we should be sensitive to those in need around us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, James 2.15, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give to them what the body needs, what good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. He's talking about the usefulness of living in a world in which a person has no compassion for the needs around them as an example of, of the way in which faith actually has a product. And you really see there, I think, the direct challenge to that dualism that would separate the moral and spiritual from the material. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who says, be warm and filled, but does not actually help you 
you know, satisfy those needs is somebody who's doing the moral and spiritual thing but does not then follow up with material action that aligns with those uh, affirmations. Uh, and so the, the Christian faith is really a direct challenge to that. James, uh, in particular, is, no, is famous for that, uh, demanding that tight integration of our spiritual uh, identity and our material actions. Yes, and uh, the next passage in the list, which I'm having trouble getting to on my iPad because Psalms is such a big book, <laughs> is uh, is uh, Psalm 112 and uh, verses three to five, uh, and it reads as follows: His house contains wealth and riches; his integrity endures. In the darkness, a light shines for the godly. For for each one who is merciful, compassionate, and just, it goes well for the one who generously lends money and conducts his business honestly. Uh, obviously an exhortation to conducting your, your business life and your everyday life with, with integrity and compassion. Absolutely, and I think also uh, one of those places where uh, it, is, it is affirmed as a general observation that that tends to lead to economic flourishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and not only for yourself but for others as well. So notice lending generously. Uh, it's, it's, we don't have time for a lengthy discussion of how lending is different in an agricultural economy than it is in a contemporary uh, industrialized economy. Uh, but this imperative to lend generously is there because in an agricultural economy, people don't have easy access to uh, capital. Mm -hmm. And so one of the important functions for those who have accumulated some capital is to uh, serve essentially as the local bank. Mm -hmm. uh, that if, if, if you have some money stored up, one of the things that you need to do to help other people uh, thrive uh, is to make it available through lending uh, because there's just, you know, there's not a banking system. Yes. There's no bank you can go to for a loan. Right. So you got to get help wherever wherever it can come from. Now, to me, uh, of all the passages that are listed, the one that I op most often direct people to when I say, you know, is there one passage in the New Testament that just kind of sums it all up? Uh, it's it's a series of texts in First Timothy six. Where, where Paul uh, summarizes uh, what godliness is and the way in which uh, we should view contentment, uh, our access to resources, that kind of thing. In 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, it says, Now godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take a th single thing out either. That's kind of a reflection and a commentary on the parable that we started off with. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. I think just thinking about what that verse is saying and what we ought to be content with uh, is a pretty significant verse in and of itself. We often talk about what we need, but our list of needs is often much bigger than it actually needs to be. Uh, then in, in verse 9 it says, those who long to be rich, however, stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all evils. Key there is the idea of love of money. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. That takes us through verse 10. And then the discussion picks up again in verse 17 with this, command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to set their hope on riches which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good 
to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future, and so lay hold of what is truly life. And if you ask yourself what that passage says is truly life, what's truly life is being generous with the resources God gives you in such a way that you bless the people around you. No, and I think it comes back to relationship once again. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can hear in that admonition to the wealthy uh, both of the concerns we were looking at when we asked the question, you know, can, can a Christian own a Maserati? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it says, be rich in good deeds and be generous givers, mm -hmm. right? So don't just contentedly say, well, I've got this money, so I'm going to enjoy it, right? On the other hand, it says God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So that is the, I think, the, the stopper against legalism. When we get to the point where we're saying, well, you may need a full piece of bread, but I can live on half a piece of bread. Mm -hmm. You know, God gives us all things richly to enjoy, and that legalistic attitude that would deny us the enjoyment of the things God has given us. Uh, is is just as much off the mark. Uh, I'd like to also uh, point out uh, the role of, you, you said, uh, food and shelter, right? Uh -huh. Food and covering. I'm told, I'm no Greek scholar, but I'm told that the word there is covering and uh -huh. could include both clothing and housing. Yes. Uh, but notice uh, that ties back to what James was talking about, right? If a person is lacking in daily food or clothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see those two things again and again and again in Scripture uh, identified as our needs, you know, food and, and covering. We're not talking about Xboxes here. Yeah. Uh, so so um, I think if, if we could recover a sense of being content if we've got what we need uh, and uh, Think about the fact that in the in the modern economy, where it's an entrepreneurial economy, um, we are all by that standard uh, pretty wealthy. You know, virtually all. That's of us. exactly right. There are exceptions, and I don't want to forget that. But most of us are very wealthy. Uh, we have a, an Old Testament professor in one of the schools that I work with who did a word study on uh, uh, prosperity in the Old Testament. Found that the root of that word is a word associated with having excess or leftover. Uh, especially in the context of food. So if you've got extra food left over, you're prosperous. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the standard in an agricultural economy. Two-thirds of the population in an agricultural economy is at or close to subsistence level, where they're just living hand to mouth. They have as much as they need to survive, and that's it. If you've got something left over after pure survival, then you're prosperous by that standard. Uh, and we are now living in a society where almost all of us are prosperous in that way. Uh, you know, a middle class person, fantastically so. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're still trying to figure out, I think, what does it mean to be godly in that context and how do you organize society in that context? Exactly. I think we're still wrestling with that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, just to make the point that you made about the term uh, clothing, the Greek term here, we don't normally do this, but you've given me the chance as a New Testament person to throw in a little Greek, uh, so I'm going to do it. Uh, um, and that uh, a skeposma is the term, and it can refer to clothing. It can also refer to housing. So it's, it's precisely the point uh, that you are making. If you check it in the lexicon, for those of you who don't believe me, uh, that's, what the, that's what the lexicon will tell you. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.